0: If you have your Bible, I do invite you to turn to Acts chapter 7, verses 17 to 43. Today, I'm going to have us focus on one specific theme that this passage addresses, and that is rejection. Rejection. Now, rejection is a normal and common part of life. Uh, We can be recipients of rejection. And we can deliver the act of rejecting. But let's think about being a recipient. Uh, It just seems impossible for any human being to go through life without being rejected. Every individual experience can be unique on a large scale or on a small scale. Uh, Maybe it was that embarrassing moment where someone rejected you in a basketball game as you were going for the hoop. Uh, Perhaps you were hoping to get a position for the job, but the company hired someone else instead of you. Or it could have been a time when you husbands presented a very brilliant idea to your wife and she gave you that look of disapproval. Now, there are some devastating rejections uh, when a spouse leaves or divorces his or her spouse, or when the boss fires some of their employees from their jobs, when family members abandon and ostracize another family member. And the common experience and feeling that all have is the stinging pain. Understandably, none of us like to feel rejected because the resulting emotions is so painful and paralyzing moving away from the common human experience of rejection, it should not be surprising that scripture gives us plenty of examples where God, his chosen messengers, and even his people were rejected. It is a theme that runs through the pages of scripture, and it is impossible to miss it. Stephen here in this context is giving his defense before the Jewish council for allegedly blaspheming against God, Moses, the law, and the temple. He was accused of those false charges given by the false witnesses in the latter part of chapter 6. And so he answers those charges in this extensive speech in this passage, Acts chapter 7, verses 2 to 53. It is the longest speech and the longest chapter in the book of Acts. And I want to remind you of Stephen's purposes, for his defense. First, Stephen did not commit blasphemy. That's what he tries to show. He did not commit blasphemy, but instead he tries to flip the narrative around to show that the Jews were the wrongdoers. Second, the Jews had the habit of rejecting God's messengers. And that is what we'll be focusing more on in this message. And third, Stephen aims to show that the Jews had a misconstrued understanding of the temple, which will be our topic for next Sunday. See, we looked at verses 1 to 16, where Stephen talked about Abraham and Joseph. We learned about God's promise to Abraham and God's faithfulness to Joseph. Stephen explained to them that he did not blaspheme God, but showed them that God was not confined to the temple but that he made his glorious appearance to those two characters outside of the temple, outside of Jerusalem, and outside of Israel. We then transition to verses 17 to 43, where where Stephen will talk about God's calling of Moses. This is the major portion of Stephen's discourse. This is another important aspect of Israel's history. Uh, in the life of Moses, Stephen simply summarizes three, three stages of his life like this. From 0 to 40, Moses was in Egypt. From 40 years old to 80 years old, Stephen, uh, Moses was in Median. From 80 years old to 120 years old, Moses was in the wilderness. So in this passage, let me just present to you a big idea that you should remember throughout this message. And that is, Moses was God's prophet whom Israel rejected. Moses was God's prophet whom Israel rejected. And there are three simple yet sobering lessons from this passage that we can take into practical consideration. Three simple lessons. First, Israel rejected Moses because they despised his authority. In verses 17 to 22, Stephen provides a summary of Exodus chapter 1 to 2. So let's look at verses 17 to 22. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race During the time in Exodus chapter 1, the Israelites have lived in Egypt for about 430 years. Jacob and Joseph and all the brothers have all passed away. However, Israel continued to remain in Egypt and haven't left yet, and they kept growing and multiplying in the land of Egypt. However, the promise that God granted to Abraham, back in verse 17, drew near. Now, what was the promise? If you look back at chapter 7, verse 5, God promised to give the land of Canaan to Abraham as a possession and to his offspring after him. See, in God's sovereign decree, it was during this critical time that two characters emerged into the scene, Pharaoh and Moses. Here, Pharaoh saw the growth of the nation of Israel, and he was afraid of them that they would eventually invade Egypt. And so he enslaved them and put them in hard labor. One of the biggest crimes and sins that Pharaoh committed was the murder of the newborn baby boys. He ordered the Egyptian soldiers to drown every son that is born to the Hebrews in the Nile River, so that they would not stay alive. But he let every daughter live. And it was also at this time that Moses was born. Stephen describes Moses here in verse 20 as beautiful in God's sight. And he wants to make the point to the Jewish council that he's not blaspheming Moses, but he does give a word of praise to Moses. Although Moses was beautiful and fine, his life was under threat by Pharaoh. Now, why would God God orchestrate such an event where Moses, the future deliverer of Israel, be born in such a perilous circumstance? I think when the circumstance is dire and and when there's no one to look to for hope and help, God uses that fitting moment to do his subtle and providential work. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 tells us that Moses' mom hid him for three months but had to place him among the reeds by the riverbank. And so by the sovereign grace of God, baby Moses was protected by the Lord through the daughter of Pharaoh. She spotted him, and took him, adopted him, and gave him all the education and wisdom in Egypt. And I want to mention to those of you who may not be familiar with Exodus 1-2, to during that time, Moses was living in the palace of Egypt. And he wasn't a slave. He wasn't a slave like the Israelites. He had all the riches. He had all the royalty of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter. However, he knew that he wasn't an Egyptian. He knew that he was an Israelite. He knew that his identity is rooted in God and in the covenant people of God. According to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 25, we are told that Moses did not want to stay in the palace. He didn't want to stay in the palace. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. This story then picks up the theme that I want to focus on. The theme of rejection was briefly highlighted in the life of Joseph, but is probably more emphasized and bolded in the life of Moses. So in verses 23 to 29, this scene gives us a glimpse of Moses' first-hand experience in receiving rejection by one fellow Hebrew. And this summarizes the rest of Exodus chapter 2. It says this in verses 23 to 29, When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers the children of Israel and seeing one of them was and seeing one of them being wronged he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand but they did not understand and on the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them saying Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And by this time, Moses was 40 years old. He was young, and he was healthy. And I think God laid it on his heart to visit and to defend and to rescue the children of Israel in verses 23 to 25. You see, when an Egyptian was striking and beating the Hebrew slave, Moses took action and struck down the Egyptian, thus killing him. He wanted to save, and he wanted to deliver them from their oppressor. Now, why would Moses do such a thing? Stephen interprets in verse 25 that he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. See, God heard their cry. God heard their groaning in Egypt, and he wanted to bring them back to the land of Canaan and to take possession of it. Unfortunately, Moses had a wrong assumption because Israelites didn't understand. In fact, throughout history, they were very, very slow in recognizing him as their deliverer. And so, Moses was rejected by one man in verses 29, 26 to 29. One day, Moses saw two Hebrews fighting and quarreling with each other, and he wanted to be a peacemaker. He wanted to reconcile them. He wanted to intercede for them, kind of like what Jesus Christ does. But the man who was the wrongdoer of his neighbor thrust him aside. To thrust is the same word to reject and to repudiate. And he questioned, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? He rejected Moses because he despised him. And what you will need to notice is that this question will be repeated again in verse 35. And this word thrust is also repeated in verse 39. Who made Moses both judge and ruler? If you look down at verse 35, it was God who made him a ruler and a judge. A rejection from one man is a foreshadow of the future rejection from the congregation. This one man assumed that Moses was going to kill him instead of rescuing and delivering him. And so similarly, in the future, the congregation assumed that Moses was going to kill them in the wilderness instead of bringing them to the promised land. Now, that's not mentioned here, but you can read all about that in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. And so after the rejection from one man, Moses fled in the land of Midian for 40 years, And he worked as a shepherd. And then in verses 30 to 34, we remember an important and memorable story of Moses. It says in verses 30 to 34, Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come. I will send you to Egypt. See, the angel of the Lord appeared in the wilderness of Midian at the burning bush. This location was where Moses heard the voice and the calling from the Lord. And there are two significances of this passage. First, in light of the context and what we've learned last week, Stephen reminds the Jews that the Lord called a place in the wilderness of Midian a holy ground not at the temple because God appeared to Moses outside of Israel and second the Lord called and sent Moses to Pharaoh that he may bring his people the children of Israel out of Egypt God's calling of Moses is a way to delegate him the authority given by the Lord and since Moses was a prophet, he is God's spokesperson. The present and the presence in the words of Moses carried divine authority. He was known as the lawgiver, who was who gave the Israel the Ten Commandments. He's called to, he's called to lead the Israelites from Egypt to the land of Canaan. And to go against Moses was to go against God's given authority. And so, from this overview that we've learned, we learned that Israel rejected Moses because they despised his authority. And the second lesson we can learn from this passage is that Israel rejected Moses because they were blinded by their idolatry. Stephen then gives us a, a quick panorama, if you will, of Exodus 14. 16, and 32. And as we read, notice, and as we will read this passage, God's affirmation of Moses, we notice that God's affirmation of Moses, as Stephen stretches his point by saying, this Moses, and this is the one. Notice this in this passage. In In verses 35 to 30 to 41. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us as for this moses who led us out from the land of egypt we do not know what has become of him and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands there is a sobering there is a sobering lesson and reflection For all who profess to be born-again Christians here. See, in the life of Moses, there's only a small portion in Scripture where his rejection was a rejection by the world or by the pagan, such as Pharaoh. But throughout the rest of Exodus and and also Numbers, there's a major portion where where he was rejected by his own people by God's covenant people. Now, I do not believe this is unique to Moses. Jesus was also rejected by his own people. Paul was rejected as an apostle by the Corinthian church. And there's a scandalous record within church history where the church and Christians are just out of step in this matter. Sometime in the latter part of the 18th century, there was a man by the name of Charles Simeon. He went to be ordained to be as a vicar or clergy of the Holy Trinity Church at the age of 23, a rather young pastor. And because of Simeon's evangelical and biblical preaching, the congregation wanted another minister. They locked their pews against him. If you you don't know, like some of the churches in England uh, had this thing called a pew, box pews and where the attendees would have to open that little door and to go in and sit and those who came to hear Simeon preach were forced to stand in the aisles because those, box, those doors were locked and when Simeon wanted to put benches in the aisles the church wardens threw them out now this story might be the closest and extreme example that I'm aware of where a pastor was rejected by the church due to selfishness and unbiblical standards. Thankfully, Simeon persevered despite discouragement and wanting to quit. You see, this happens all the time in churches where some in the congregation want to slander and gossip behind the backs of church leaders. As we even look at the story of Moses, even look at the life of the Israelites, some some of us and even some of you may often just judge the Israelites for just being rebellious and stubborn. How could they just be like that? But we've got to be careful with that attitude because we can be guilty of this as well. We can be guilty of this as well if we don't check our own hearts. You see, Moses' rejection was not from the world per se, but from his own people. Despite all the works of the works of God done through Moses, in performing signs and miracles, crossing the Red Sea, giving the manna in the wilderness, and in the giving of the law, Israel continued the rebellion in the wilderness, which delayed their return to the Promised Land for another forty years. Stephen reminds the Jews. Verse 37 That Moses predicted that God will raise up for them a prophet like Moses. This was a reference from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Jews would have known that the verse to be messianic. See, they accepted what that is what Moses taught, but they still rejected the one who's the fulfillment of that passage, that verse. In other words, they rejected Jesus Christ. And by rejecting Jesus Christ, the Jews were again repeating the history of their fathers in rejecting God's sent Deliverer and Redeemer. And so in verses 38 to 41, Stephen gets to Exodus 20 and 32. It was the giving of the law, referring to the living oracle that Moses received and gave to the Israelites. Unfortunately, they refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside. They rejected him. They repudiated him. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. And we remember that they made an idol, famously known as the golden calf. Stephen comments in verse 41 that they offered a sacrifice to the idol. which which means that they worshiped a false god. And not only that, they were rejoicing in the works of their hands, which meant that they were proud. They were proud of their idolatry. Immediately after receiving the law, the Israelites did exactly what they're instructed not to do, and they did so at the foot of Mount Sinai before the presence of a holy God. This implies that they were proud in rejecting God, rejecting Moses, and rejecting the law. This is is a story that gets repeated constantly throughout the history of Israel. Rebellion after rebellion, disobedience after disobedience, their rejection of Moses overlapped with the rejection of the law, which also overlapped with the rejection of the Lord. Most of the time, people reject God because their hearts turn to idolatry. Worshiping idols, worshiping other gods, worshiping self. Israel was blinded by their idolatry. And from time to time in in Exodus and in Numbers, they made a revolt. They wanted to establish their own leadership and to head back to Egypt because that is where their hearts turn to. Egypt in the Old Testament was a real place, and it's still a real place in this day, but it does carry many significant symbolisms. Israel's redemption from Egypt is a picture of our deliverance from sin and death through Jesus Christ, through our faith in Jesus Christ. While while initially seen as a place of refuge in famine or threat, Egypt became a place of oppression and slavery. See, for New Testament believers, under the New Covenant, for us, Egypt represented our old life of slavery to sin. All people are by nature slaves of sin, and Satan is the hard, hard taskmaster, a harsher taskmaster than the Egyptian taskmasters and overseers. God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt by the blood of the Lamb on the first Passover, and he redeems us from sin by the blood of the Lamb of God. See, just as God called his people, the Israelites, out of bondage in Egypt, he calls us, his children, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Under the new covenant, what Christ has done for us should transform us and change our hearts from our heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Unfortunately, those in the, under the old covenant, they did not have a change of heart because the law did not have the power to do so. And so consequently, because Israel rejected Moses, the law, and God, God responded to their sins in verses 42 to 43 but God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephem. The images that you made to worship now send you into exile beyond Babylon. You see, we learn our final lesson here by rejecting Moses God gave Israel over to their depravity God gave Israel over to their depravity this is the same language in Romans chapter 1 verse 28 and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done Giving them over doesn't mean that God was tolerating their behavior or that God was blessing them. It is the language of God's pronouncement of judgment and wrath. God will let you go in your own way and to suffer the terrible consequence and cycle of your own increasing sins. And then Stephen quotes Amos chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. So he, does move, he moves away from the narrative of Exodus, although it's not completely forgotten. Amos lived and wrote his prophecy 1,000 years after the wilderness incident. I think Stephen quotes this as a way to point to the parallelism between Israel in the wilderness and Israel living in the promised land. And then he drives home to his point to his contemporaries. In the wilderness days... Israel worshipped the golden calf. In Amos' day, Israel, the northern kingdom, worshipped Molech and Rephim. These were the false gods that Israel worshipped, and they did so by sacrificing their children. Consequently, God exiled his people. Beyond where? Amos actually uses the word Damascus. While Stephen chose to alter it to Babylon. And James Montgomery Boyce explains the reason here, and I quote Amos wrote beyond Damascus because he was a prophet to the people of the northern kingdom, and he was prophesying their exile. They were taken beyond Damascus by the Syrians, but Stephen, who quotes the text, alters it because he was not talking to the people of the northern kingdom but to the leaders of Israel in the south. It is their history he has in mind. When they were carried away into captivity, it was not by the Syrians who took the people of the northernmost Jewish state into exile beyond Damascus in 721 BC, but rather by the Babylonians who took them beyond Babylon in 586 BC." And so Stephen here was adapting his message to draw an application for the Jewish council that is rather understandable. The rebellious people in the life of Joseph and even in the life of Moses have been characteristic of the Jews throughout the history. And he tells them that history repeats itself. They're part of the history. Stephen was falsely charged of blas- for blasphemy against Moses and law, in response, Stephen shows, shows the Sanhedrin that they're breaking the law of Moses for all of their lives. And because they've been rejecting Moses, they will also reject the one whom Moses prophesied, and God will judge them for that. And so we, we come to close to our conclusion. As we wrap things up, we want to review the big idea here, and that is Moses was God's prophets whom Israel was rejected, whom Israel rejected. Israel rejected Moses because they despised His authority. Israel rejected Moses because they were blinded by their idolatry, and by rejecting Moses, God gave Israel over to their depravity. So something we can think about and reflect upon is that there's a warning here for all of us there is a warning, and that is if you reject God, God will reject you. God will give you over to your depravity. And this, is, this doesn't just apply to non-Christians. This applies to those who profess Christ and yet choose to willfully reject his word. And this is speaking to all of us. This is speaking to you. This is speaking to me. The more you disobey God, the more you show that you do not love him no matter how much you claim, you profess, and say that you love him. Jesus said that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and to take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For, who, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me, in my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his own glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Whoever denies, Jesus says, whoever denies or rejects me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is a warning for us. Indeed, for those of you who don't know Christ, this is especially a warning for you. Don't reject Christ. Repent of your sins now. Repent of your rejection of Christ. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ as Lord and Savior, lest he rejects you when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And the result of that rejection will be far more painful than a stinging pain. It will be in the eternal conscious torment in hell. We're called to repent, turn from their sins, turn to Christ for salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we often don't like to hear hard messages because sometimes these messages from your word can be stinging and hard to accept, but God, you wrote your word for us to receive. It's sometimes your word has hard words for us to, say, to hear. And some of us will either receive it and accept it, or some of us will reject it and continue our own ways. So Lord, please help us to reflect carefully of this passage and apply it into your own lives. Lord, if there are those of us here who don't know you, I pray that you would soften their hearts, turn their hearts from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh so that they will receive your word and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And now, God, as we come to a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, I pray that this is like a sobering time for us to reflect on our own lives and how we lived out our lives as Christians. And that we, as we take this bread and the cup, we want to do so. We want to do so in a worthy manner so that we will not fall and be judged by you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.